Luke 21, but just put something there. Um, and then I want you to run to, I guess, 1 Timothy. I wasn't satisfied with this morning, but then again, I was trying to get you to drink out of a fire hydrant. That's difficult to do. I tried three ways, I know, to try to summarize that in a Sunday morning setting and still didn't, still couldn't get it done. It was just an impossible task, I think. I don't like dividing up. When our Lord sits down to carry one thought out, I don't like dropping a divider in it. I like just carrying his thought out. So I struggle with trying to find a place to cut things off. Uh, so if you've marked Luke 21, I want to show you some passages in 1 Timothy. So run to 1 Timothy and then that will introduce some things that we find in Luke 21. Let's see, 1 Timothy 4, I want to make some mention of things there. And then I'll pick up chapter 6 and we'll roll right into 2 Timothy and two more passages. But I want you to notice um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, I guess let me begin in verse 6. And we'll grab verse 11 where I'm wanting to direct your attention. Paul tells Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Notice, doctrine has a purpose. We follow it. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Train yourself for godliness. There's that emphasis again. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil, we strive, because we have set our hope on God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Verse 11, notice, command and teach these things. Now turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look with me at, well, you see the break, the very end of verse 2, 1 Timothy 6, the very end of verse 2 where he begins the word teach again. It says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up, he's conceited, he understands nothing. Those are strong words. He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and quarrels about words, which only produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness might be a means of gain. But what was the goal of his teaching? It was godliness. You see that in verse 3? Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he knows absolutely nothing. Turn over to 2 Timothy. Let's see, chapter 3, verse 16. You have this one memorized. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Reproof, correction, and, and training that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now go with me to Luke chapter 21. And if you remember how this section concluded, and it concludes with the words of our Lord in the temple. In fact, I'll tell you, let's start at 19 first and look at verse 47. Because he comes into Jerusalem and the tone is set about the primary task of our Lord. So you've got Luke 19 verse 47. This whole section begins with this thought. He was teaching daily in the temple. Now run to the very last words, which is 2137. Twenty-one thirty-seven, and every day he was teaching in the temple. And those are the last things that we hear from our Lord before he is betrayed and off he goes to Calvary. And then look back at 21 verse 7. And they ask him saying, teacher, when will these things be? And he begins to teach them. Now, you know where I am on this. And you're probably not surprised that I would bring it up. But it's the greatest problem in our church, American church, so to speak, in the last couple hundred years. This is the primary purpose of the pulpit, and that was forsaken for other things. And now we reap the benefit and the rewards of that very poor decision. This is, was the primary task of our Lord. And you think, and there, what if I ask you this question? What was the last thing Jesus was doing before he went to Calvary? He was teaching. He was simply teaching, right? And when we think about, you know, probably everybody in this church is either married to a teacher or is a teacher. Well, why do you teach? Well, you teach to prepare kids for their future. You teach them so that they will have a future and hopefully go out and do something productive with their lives, right? It's no different in Christianity. The task of the Lord before Calvary was that he would teach and he was teaching specifically to prepare them for their future, and then we take the word of God and we do all kinds of bizarre things with it. It is not bizarre. It is not mystical. It's certainly not magical. It's what our Lord gave himself to do while he was there. Yes, he preached the gospel, but he was given over to much teaching and much instruction. And so when we come to the last days or the last times or speaking of the last times, like I said this morning, He's not making bizarre connections about particular days and events in Daniel and Revelation and running around trying to connect the things that happened today and trying to find some overlap in the Bible. He's not doing any of that. He's just simply teaching them. And he tells us in John 16, 1, if you're taking notes, jot this down, go read it later on. He tells us in John 16, 1, I've told you th these things beforehand so that you won't stumble. And he's talking about end times with his guys, some of the things that they're going to experience, the persecutions they're going to face. And he says, this is why I told you this. I told you this so you wouldn't fall into sin. So now you know beforehand. So now you know what's coming. And so now you won't be surprised and you can walk by faith with these things. And so I think that's the context of all this that I, I didn't really take the time to communicate this morning. It's just simple instruction. And that's why it's different. There's I mean, it's. Black and white, just like I showed you that slide this morning, there's circumstances, right? There's the confidence that he gives in the word of God because he wants us to say, OK, circumstances are going to get really bad, y'all. But you can stand on my word because it doesn't change. It doesn't waver. 
And then he gives us commands because there's responsibilities, there's things for us to do as we face these uncertain times. I would have used the word instead of confidence, I would have used the word comfort, but I didn't like comfort because comfort implies you don't have anything to do. Right? When things go south for our kids, we comfort them and we don't expect anything of them because we just hold them till they stop crying. So God's word does comfort us, but I like the word confidence better because you've got things to do in the midst of all these things. And so I've got to give you some place where you can stand so that you can obey me and not waver worrying about earth falling out of you know, the solar system. If it does, it doesn't matter. That's not going to change God's word, right? It's forever and remains. So again, he's telling us things are what are going to happen, things that you need to know, and then ways that we must respond. And we talked about the perilous times. And if you're in chapter 21, and note the progression that I mentioned this morning. It goes from people to planet to universe. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and pestilence in various places. And then he moves out broader. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. He picks that up again in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and on the earth distress and nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. And I imagine if you start messing with the solar system, you're going to mess with the oceans, right? And of course, those people or people that don't know Christ, will faint with fear and foreboding. But then our response is recorded when he begins to talk about our redemption down in verse 28. And when they see these things, now when these things begin to take place, rather, straighten up, raise your head, you're not passing out, right? Straighten up, raise your head, because your redemption is drawing near. We have a completely different response. And listen, if you're going to stand boldly by faith when the heavens start coming apart, the only way to stand in that moment is by faith, having been strengthened by God, because it's not as though we're going to have strength in our legs. If we're able to stand, we'll stand by grace through faith. And that'll be the only way we stand. But we want to stand. We've been commanded to stand. And that's why it comes down in verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you might have strength. To escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So he's telling them, you know, I'm commanding you to stand and I want you to pray that you will stand. But then we remember Jude's doxology. Now to him who is able to make you stand. And by the way, it's exactly the same word in the Greek. And that's what the Lord does. And so we're forever finding these things in the text. This is something he does for us. This is something he commands us and this is something that he wants us to pray for. And so just like and I'm sure you thought of this, if you haven't, you will one day soon enough in your dying days. Do you not want the faith and the strength to glorify God with your words? You know, when Bill passed away, Bill Tipton and he and Diane came over to the house and we knew it'd be the last time we were going to see him. And he wanted me to call my whole family in the, in the kitchen. And he grabbed her hands and he began to pray for us. And he was a dying man. And, you know, that doesn't come because we have strength within ourselves. That becomes, comes because of the grace that God has poured out on us. But we need to be prepared for days like those or dying days. And we need to be prepared for days like these when the world is completely falling apart. But he mentions that in the perilous times... 
There will be false prophets. And this is something I didn't expound on very much this morning, and I want to tonight. Look at verse 8. See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Now, it's interesting when you go back and read church history, there were those who came claiming to be someone. I think some references, I didn't go back and look for those. There were people who claimed, came claiming to be the Messiah. But primarily there were people that came that claimed to be coming in the name of the Lord. And they led those people in revolt against Rome. Now, if you remember what we read, you know, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. That kind of sets an attitude that we have toward our government, right? It's been ordained by me and you just need to trust me. Right. But so these men would come and they would lead Israel in revolts against Rome until finally one of those men came claiming to come in the name of the Lord, led them in a revolt against Rome and Rome wiped them all out, burned the city down, burned the temple down. They failed to hear the words of our Lord. Many are going to come. Many will come in my name. And that's exactly what they're going to do. We have to be careful in our day because I know many people are taking the name of Christ and they're attaching Christ to politics and they're attaching Christ to reform in our government. And even those who want to overthrow the government in the name of Christ and all of that's foolishness that has nothing to do with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've got to be so careful. I, I get so frustrated when they put Jesus in or the American flag together, or they put Jesus in a political, you know, Jesus and Donald Trump have nothing to do with one another whatsoever. I mean, it's fine if you want to go that way, but he has nothing to do with Christ. Don't be attaching Jesus to world figures or public figures or nations or kingdoms or anything like that. He has nothing to do with those things. So we have to be careful of these people who are preaching false things, and we have to be careful of people who want to follow along in these false things. There's a long history of people that came and, and, and led the church astray. And, you know, now we stand in the wake of that. I mean, we're practically a forest burned down by false preaching. And we just have to walk through all the blackness and find one little flower springing up in the midst of that to understand that's about what truth is left because we've allowed so much false teaching to go on. Think about Second Peter chapter 2. Peter says, false prophets were among them just as there will also be false prophets and teachers among you. And so it hasn't changed. I would say it's grown worse. But then again, there was a great meaning in that day, but I do know there's a great meaning in this day. Now, much of your New Testament, and I, needed, I was thinking about this in the context of preaching, much of the New Testament is written in response to false teaching. Much of them were arguing against something. I think you're in the book of Galatians, in Sunday school, that's written as an argument. Somebody had added works to faith and Paul was appalled at that. And that is his, I guess, hardest letter that he ever sat down and wrote because someone was adding things, specifically circumcision, to faith. It was faith plus. And Paul went absolutely nuts. But that's, you know, we have to be so careful with faith. We're saved by grace, right, through faith, right? So we've got to be so careful with faith. And then you take the primitive Baptists who are so opposed to any sort of work, they take faith and they call faith the work. Nowhere in Scripture is faith the work. Nowhere in Scripture. Now, certainly if you take 
let's say the Lord's Prayer and you go around. You know, we had a church in the northwest that did this. They were in Portland specifically and they carried a piece of paper around and it was basically questions. And they read them three questions and asked them if they agreed to these questions and then they pronounced them saved. Okay, that's making faith look like a work that has nothing to do with conversion. Right. So we've got to be careful with that. But at the same time, saving faith is not a work. And you get on the flip side of the primitive Baptist and you run all the way over to Catholic. Well, they've added a number of things to faith. They say they're saved by faith. But then you get to looking at their faith. There's so much other things involved. It's really a system of works. Right. And so we have to be so careful to understand the gospel preach it faithfully and also raise up these issues when they are being taught against biblical faith or the word of God. And that's much of what first John is about. Turn to first John. John, John's on the attack in first John. More you begin to see some of these things that he's saying. And I'll ask you some of these things. So I won't ramble on for however long myself. First John chapter two, look at verse 22. Who is the liar? First John 2:22. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So one of the first attacks that John begins to deal with is an attack on the person of Christ. He is the Messiah. And anyone that says that Jesus is not the Messiah is the Antichrist. He is a liar and a deceiver. And you think about how many people, and I hear them in the store, I just appreciate everyone's faith. And there's just so many ways to God, right? The Buddhists get to God. The Muslims get to God. In fact, you can hear a very old video of Billy Graham saying very similar things to these that you're just like, what are you saying? No, Jesus alone is the Christ, period. There are no other messiahs. There are no other Christ. There are no other ways. So first... I mean, John just attacks this in first John two, but look at his attack in verse four. You tell me the problem that he's addressing. First John four, verse two. By this, you know that the spirit of God, um, I'm sorry, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, I would add, in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So what's John fighting against? Those who say what? Jesus did not what? He wasn't a man. He didn't come in the flesh. And John is like, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ was fully man, you're the Antichrist. Man, we don't deal with things like this anymore. Right. Well, oh, you know, everybody can have their beliefs. It's OK. And it's not OK. It's not OK. And this is why the church is in the condition that it's in. It's not OK. That's the attitude of the Antichrist. So now we've excluded a number of various religions or cults that I would call them on the extremities because they don't believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Right. 
Look at 4.15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. What were they attacking? Not the humanity of Christ, but the what? The deity. the deity of Christ. If he's the son of God, he is equal with God. OK, now we just excluded Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, I think. If you mess Jesus up, you're a liar, you're a deceiver, you're a false prophet and teacher. You have the spirit of the Antichrist. You, you have to get it right about Jesus. Look at John, 1 John 3. Look at verse 7. This one's a little more difficult. You may get it right out of the gate, but look at verse 7 of 1 John 3. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices, and it's in a present continual sense, no one who is born of God continuously practices sin because the seed of Christ abides in him. He cannot continue in sin because now he's born of God. Now we've got huge problems with the false teaching that's gone in the church. Because you can literally live in sin in our day and continue in the faith and they'll continue to call you a Christian. In fact, uh, there's a paper that Nathan's read that if I have time, I'll, I'll point out some of those things. But they call them carnal Christians. They've chosen Jesus, but they've chosen as well to continue to live their own ways. And so we have all these people, especially in our day, this issue is sexual immorality in all of its various forms. You realize the majority of the people live continually in sexual immorality in some form in our community. And yet they profess Christ. And yet John says, oh, no, no, you're a liar and a deceiver. You cannot continue in these things and be faithful to Christ. It's simply not possible. So there was an attack on the teachings of Christ. That's run south in the church. There's an attack on the mission of Christ. Those who remove the importance of the gospel and try to add all these other things into the gospel, whether they're social reforms or whatever. And then there are those, and I felt very convicted thinking about some of these things. There are those who ignore our greater purpose of making disciples. And the SBC for long years has taken up the command to win people to the Lord or taken up the task of winning people to the Lord. And certainly that's an involvement in the process, but that's not what we were told to do. It begins with evangelism. It moves from profession to baptism, but it continues on in making disciples by what? What's the next word? Teaching teaching them to obey all things. That's the command we were given. I've actually had an SBC leader say to me, I'll win them to the Lord. It's the Holy, Holy Spirit's responsibility to make them disciples. And I'm like, that is a great quote to sum up the false teaching and practices of our own SBC convention. Don't get me wrong. Evangelism is very important. We must be about the task. But the goal is not for them to say the prayer. 
the goal is for them to follow Christ with their life. And so that's what we were called to do. We've we've had our own. We've had our many own false teachings that we've just given into. So he moves from. OK, let me ask you this and I'll come back to it. What's the one thing the Lord has given us to stand on in the face of false teaching? His word. You're not going to know Christ unless you know his word. You're not going to know the deity of Christ. You're not going to know the humanity of Christ. You're not going to know the teachings of Christ. You're not going to know the gospel of Christ until you know his word. And that's why we have this. And so all of our teaching needs to glorify Christ, be about Christ, because there's so many attacks against Christ. Because people say, well, I believe. Whatever. Persecutions, look in 21.12. Before all this, they'll lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons and will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Notice that. 16... They'll put you to death. 18, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, I sat down and went back through. um, Oh, my goodness. The name of it just left me. I'm already there at the age of 51. The book about martyrs. Fox's book of martyrs. Thank you. Couldn't think of foxes. And I began to read. And, you know, when it broke out with Nero because of his, I don't know, man was mad, right? When it broke out with him, do you know how those Christians must have felt? Oh, Jesus is coming. Because he just, he set them on fire for fun. And he's covered them with tar, lit them up and stood them on street corners just for fun. And believers had to think, man, Jesus is going to come at any time. And he was followed up by Domitian, who was even more brutal and began to kill Christians. And they had to think as their brothers and sisters were dying, they had to think, oh, Jesus is coming like this afternoon. And then they go into a few years of peace. And then it was followed by one wave after another, one wave after another of persecution and Christians dying in unbelievable and unimaginable ways. And every moment, can you imagine Jesus is coming? We get into COVID and we think Jesus is coming. I mean, come on, y'all. But that's the knee jerk response for difficult times, right? But there will be a time that we have to suffer if we're a part of the church. That's the only qualifier that I'll put in there. If we're really a part of the true church, and I say that trembling in my own soul, then we will suffer. At some point in the history of this nation and will suffer greatly. But this is what Paul tells Timothy. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is our lot, right? This is our lot. Let me finish up this thought so I won't move away from it. Look at verse. Twelve. 
But before all this, they will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They'll deliver you up to synagogues, prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors. Notice, for my name's sake. Now, turn with me to verse 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. All of that couches the context of persecution. So if you want to know why we suffer, it is for his glory and for his name's sake. You know, it, it puts you in a bizarre place because you almost want to suffer for his name's sake. Well, we don't have to desire those things, but certainly we should be faithful in those things. And I went and read all these testimonies of these men in the midst of their suffering and it's absolutely unbelievable. But the reason for some of these things that they say, notice verse 13. Your suffering will be your opportunity to bear witness. And here's our one word of instruction. 14, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer them. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's your one command in suffering. Don't think about what you're going to say. This is about the only time, the only time I know of in the text where God actually tells you to be unprepared. I want you to intentionally be unprepared with your words because Jesus says, I'll give you the words. Now, where in the text do we find the Lord faithfully giving a dying believer words? Remember, Stephen, Acts, I won't I won't read it all, but I'm amazed at the words that he was given. So go with me to the book of Acts. It's chapter seven, I believe. <laughs> Look at verse one. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, and he enters into his speech, having been given the words by the spirit of Christ. Brothers and sisters, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. I'm like, time out. That's what Christ gave you to say. Yes. He wanted me to exegete the entire Old Testament. And that's what Abraham does. Those are the words that God gives him to speak before he dies by being stoned. He exegetes the entire Old Testament, showing them how the gospel was being brought forward. Right now, look at verse. 48, he gets to the temple. Verse 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then he rebukes them. You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who answered or announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and yet did not keep it. And I notice the end. I've got to read the end. And just keep in mind, 
The Lord's given him the words. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of spirit, looked into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Again, the Spirit gave him that to say. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid, you know, the garments at the feet. And there was a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning him, 59, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus gave him those words. Because we look at, we look at Stephen and go, what a man. No, that was an unprepared speech given by the Spirit of God. And now we got to say, what a God. Because he put that in a man's mouth as his last words before he died. That's our promise. Where do we get that promise? The Word of God. Where do you turn in the face of persecution? The Word of God. What does the Word of God tell you? Settle it in your hearts. It's very emphatic. Settle it in your hearts beforehand. I'm going into this unprepared, trusting that the Lord would allow me to glorify him with my last words. And so that's how the saints of old were faithful to the Lord as unprepared ones. Passing of time. Time seems long, but it, it is fixed. Verse 24. They'll fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's interesting. It's fixed. The end times have a cutoff day, so to speak. Look at 2414. In this gospel of the kingdom, I'm sorry, I'm in Matthew. Don't look there. Let me just read it to you. Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom of God will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Look at Luke 12, uh, evidently 21, 27. I jotted that down wrong. Look at verse 27. Then all of a sudden they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. And now when these things begin to take place, straighten up your heads or straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption draws nigh. So here's the deal about the passing of time. It is fixed. And when it concludes, it is sudden. It is very sudden. And I couldn't help but think about this. Go back with me to Luke 19. And look at verse 41. Comes down the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey, right? You get to 41. He drew near. He saw the city. He wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, it's too late. It's too late. And then he walks into the temple, verse 45, he calls it a den of robbers and he cleans it out. He spends the next week teaching in the temple and then he goes to Calvary and dies. All of that came upon them suddenly. And he preached repentance for three years. But now all of a sudden he's standing on the threshold of Jerusalem and he's weeping. 
because time's up and there was no repentance of faith from his people. It's over. There is no further opportunity for repentance. Right. And he tells them, you know, Jerusalem's going to fall and be burned. And then 40 years later, they are surrounded. Right. And they burn them to the ground. Now, that's our example. That's the example. So right now we're in the preaching of repentance and faith. Right. And there will be a day where Jesus will approach the threshold, so to speak, of coming back. And at that moment, it's just too late. It's too late. And then the Lord comes and he brings his judgment. So we can see that it, it, the text presents it as sudden, but it's really not sudden because you have today. You can repent today and put your faith in Christ and it doesn't seem so sudden all the more. But you do realize that one day he will stand on the threshold and it will not you will not have opportunity for repentance and faith. And that's when it will seem overwhelmingly sudden because there's nothing left for you to do. That's why I read the passage this morning in 21 where he says it will be like a trap in verse 30, 34. It'll be like a trap for you because you didn't take advantage of the day of visitation or the times of hearing the gospel and repenting and believing. So the Lord comes in judgment, but there is a period of time, the time that we are in now. But once that time passes, there will be there'll be no further opportunity. Now, here's what I find fascinating. Steve and I had a little bit of a conversation about this this week. So what is the Old Testament picture that we have that helps us understand the judgment to come on the unbelievers? What's the picture? The exile? Well, the biggest picture. No? Well, the one, Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah. That's the one that Jude uses. That's the one over and over and over again we see in the text. Sodom and Gomorrah. You're right about the flood. It's a picture too. Sodom and Gomorrah is the one that's repeated in the New Testament. Here's your picture of what the godless situation will be like. And here's what I find fascinating. I asked Steve, I said, is Jerusalem our picture of when the Lord returns and judgment begins with the house of the Lord, right? And he lays waste to this corrupt system and corrupt leaders and the corrupt worship and corrupt temples. He lays waste to all that. I said, is Jerusalem our picture? He said, yeah, but don't forget. And this is what I've forgotten. What is Jerusalem like today? It's ruins. The ruins are still there. What is Sodom and Gomorrah like today? There's no place. There's no people. There's no nothing. The Lord turned it to ash and it blew away in the wind. There is no more grace. Do you realize those ruins are a picture of God's grace? There's still a testimony of God's judgment, but because of the ruins, there's still hope. And in fact, when we get to Romans 11, we will see that hope when the gospel or the time of the Gentiles, right, has been fulfilled. And there'll be opportunity for repentance among the Jews. We'll think about those things when we get to Romans. That was so encouraging to me for the church. We're in a terrible sort. I mean, terrible. False teaching abounds. All of these things. And yet, hopefully, the Lord will raise up out of the ruins his bride and extend grace to her. So, again, terrible times. False prophets abounds. Persecutions and the one thing that we have to stand on is the very word of God, right? So let me talk about, because I skipped this, 
concerning the passing of time. Notice Luke 21, 32. We have again the word of God to stand on. Because he says in verse 32, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until everything has taken place. And so it is the word of God that tells us that God is sovereignly controlling all of these things. Right. So in other words, if you remember all those things that I put up this morning, perilous times, false prophets, persecution, this long period of time that seems so long, yet the end we know will be sudden. In all of that, God says, you stand on my word because I've addressed all of that in my word. And my word is unchanging. So we can trust and rely upon that. All right, let me see if I'm going to be satisfied with this and then I'll ask you for some questions. Uh, No, not satisfied. Turn to, let's see, I got to do our commands. Y'all just want to leave without knowing what to obey. Look at verse 34, chapter 21. In regard to perilous times, God says, this is what I want you to do. Look at verse 34. Watch yourself. Number one, watch yourself. Paul tells Timothy, watch yourself. Lest your hearts be weighed down, burdened with dissipation, drunkenness and cares of life, that the day will not come upon you like a trap. So our first command in regard to perilous times is watch. Now, the word dissipation It's really unbridled indulgence. It, too, has to do with drinking or carousing. Drunkenness obviously does, you know, with drinking. Cares of this life, that word can also be translated anxieties. In fact, Luke has already used it in that way because in Luke 8, this is what the Lord says. As for what fell among the uh, thorns, rather, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares or the anxieties of riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit never matures. So in other words, the Lord's saying, don't get swept up in living here. Don't do that. Don't get swept up in all these things and indulging yourself. And he uses drunkenness as the example. But you do realize it carries much further into this. Don't get swallowed up by the world because the world is passing away. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Second thing he gives us in verse 36. Stay awake at all times. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter and the boys. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that you are going that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So in regard to all of these difficult times, watch yourself and pray. Watch yourself and pray. You know. It's so hard. You think about how fast life is because I'm sitting here on the end of of children. Right. And I'm just like, where did the last 20 years go? Because, you know, Audrey was born and, you know, life changes. And then all of a sudden it's T-ball and basketball and music. And now we're graduating high school and now we're moved out of the house and gone to college. And I'm just like between job and kids. Where did it go? And the Lord's like, watch yourself, because in the midst of all that, you can forget what all of this is about and the fact that I'm coming again. So you have to be so careful and pray. And I think one of the most faithful prays is for you to pray, Lord, help me to watch myself. Because here I've gone a month without thanking you, two months without thinking about you, three months, six months. Lord, you think about last year. 
we didn't come to church that much together. It had a tremendous impact on the church because when we get out of those routines and we get out of our faithful walk with the Lord, how quickly, how quickly we go back to the world, right? Lord's like, watch yourself and pray that you can escape these things. Now, in regard to the false prophets, uh, where is that? Huh. I was looking at my notes. Let me just get my Bible. In regard to false prophets, go with me to verse 8, 21. Now, it's interesting. If, if I had a slide, I would show you. There's really three things here. Verse 8, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. Do not go after them. Do not, in verse 9, do not be terrified. So it's do not be led astray. Do not go after them. Do not be terrified. And in the Greek, all those words alliterate. In fact, not astray, not after, not fearful. They have the same prefix. They have the same ending. Just the roots, the difference. And the reason he does that is because he wants you to remember. The Lord worded this in such a way so you would remember. Not led astray, not going after, not fearful in regard to the false prophets. Why would he say that? Because it's so easy to be led astray. Why would he say that? Because it's so easy to follow a man. Everyone wants to follow a man. You think about, I think Audrey's favorite, Stephen Furtick, right? So many people following him. I think if Audrey could get near him, she'd probably choke him out with her bare hands. So many people want to follow a man. It's so much easier to do. You do realize there are no men we are called to follow. There are men that should be examples to their families and to their churches, but there's no one left to follow. And anybody that wants you to get behind them and follow their personality or their ministry, mm -mm, don't be led astray, don't follow. The only one that was left to follow was Christ. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't follow men anymore, okay? We have to be so careful with that. All right, it concludes with verse 19. So let's talk about this just a little bit. Verse 19, I say it concludes because I think this is a summary of, of all of Luke 21. Luke says, by your endurance, you will gain your life. By your endurance. Matthew puts it this way in Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all because of my name, but is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. I told you this morning that it is God who gives endurance. Romans 15, 5 says this. Now may the God who gives endurance or perseverance, right? James 1 tells us that the Lord produces endurance in our lives. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then we have passages like Luke 21, Matthew 10, and then Hebrews 10, 32, where he says, you have need of endurance. In other words, here we go again. God gives it. God wants you to pray for it. And God commands it. Here we go again. Now, here's the problem. And this is where false teaching comes in. What about endurance and faith? Is that contrary to faith? 
if I have to endure to be saved? And so what men have done rather than paying attention to the text. And I've told you some things are difficult to work out. We put pins in them and we begin to think about those things. But what they do is because it doesn't fit what they think, they dismiss it. And here's some of them. Nathan had given me this about endurance. And this is what Zane Hodges, Zane Hodges said. The simple fact is that the New Testament never takes for granted that believers will see discipleship through to the end. And it never makes this kind of endurance either a condition or proof of salvation from hell. In other words, he just dismisses endurance. He says the Bible never makes anything of that. Joseph Dillo says this, it is impossible for a born again person to fall away from the faith and stop believing. He is simply called a carnal Christian. What he forfeits when he falls away is not his eternal destiny, but his opportunity to reign with Christ. And yet Matthew says, the one who endures to the end will be sozo saved. So what's the problem? Well, here's what their problem is. They have this view of faith and they won't even let Scripture speak to that. Right. And you could go over to primitive Baptists and they would completely dismiss endurance as a work. But you need to understand that the spirit that lives within you is living and active and he produces Christ likeness in you if you're born again. We must endure in order to be saved. God gives endurance. God produces endurance and you better endure. How does that work? Well, I don't know that we could ever explain that adequately, but we must take what the text says is truth and hear the command to endure. Right. It's what Christians do. So I think what stands over all of 21 doesn't matter how bad they get endure. It doesn't matter how false the gospel becomes, endure in the true gospel. It doesn't matter how much we suffer persecutions, endure. It doesn't matter how long Christ waits for his return, endure. It doesn't matter how fearful it will be when we see his face in the sky. Stand up and endure. Your redemption has come, right? Questions? About any of that. <laughs> oh, I was going to ask you this question. What does that remind us of where in Luke 21, 15, where the Lord says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Has he done that before? Old Testament. Huh? Moses. Remember this conversation, Exodus 4, the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I, even I will be your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Not a new thing that he does for us. It's an old thing. He's always done. Right. I remember when we were living in the Northwest, a guy from the pulpit said that that's the way he prepared for sermons was to remain unprepared because it was God who was going to give him a mouth and wisdom. I was like, brother, that's not from behind the pulpit. That's during persecution. When you get behind the pulpit, you better be prepared. 
In fact, that's what Paul tells Timothy. You better take pains with these things, boy. It's not easy. Questions?